Hiring for your small business? If you're not looking for professionals on LinkedIn, you're looking in the wrong place. That's like looking for your car keys in a fish tank. LinkedIn helps you hire professionals you can't find anywhere else, even those who aren't actively searching for a new job but might be open to the perfect role. In a given month, over 70% of LinkedIn users don't even visit other leading job sites. So start looking in the right place. With LinkedIn, you can hire professionals like a professional. Post your free job on linkedin.com slash achieve today. There's never been a faster or easier way to start your weight loss journey than with PlushCare. PlushCare accepts most insurance plans and gives you online access to board-certified physicians who can prescribe FDA-approved weight loss medications like Wigovi and ZepBound for those who qualify. Take charge of your health and speak with a board-certified physician about a weight loss plan that's right for you. Get started today at plushcare.com slash weight loss. That's plushcare.com slash weight loss. plushcare.com slash weight loss. Hey, it's Ryan Reynolds, and I'm here with Keith, co-star of my upcoming film, If, only in theaters May 17th. Do you want to tell people the big news... All right, I'll do. It. Sign up now and you'll get unlimited for $15 a month in six months of Paramount Plus Essential Plan on us. Mintmobile.com slash switch. Upfront payment of $45 equivalent to $15 per month. Unlimited over 40 gigabytes per month. Face lower speeds. Videos at 480p. Active Mint customers by 531.24 get six months of Paramount Plus Essential Plan. Auto renews after six months. Offer ends May 31st, 2024. Separate Paramount Plus registration required. Terms and conditions apply if rated PG. And welcome to Pattern Portraits, an artwork and podcast by me, Lauren Godfrey. Each episode, I speak with a fellow pattern lover in the creative industries about their relationship to pattern and colour and how surrounding themselves with pattern serves as a kind of armour. Each guest has selected some textiles special to them, which we will discuss using the patterns to delve into their stories. I've also created an accompanying artwork, an abstract pattern portrait of the sitter through their patterns made from jasmineite inlaid with perspex and brass, and a resulting print will be available to purchase. There'll be an exhibition of all the artworks, and the prints are available on my website, laurengodfrey.co.uk. Follow Lauren Godfrey Studio and Pattern Portraits Podcast on Instagram to stay in the loop. Welcome to Pattern Portraits. Today I'm speaking with Hannah Sabapathy, an artist and designer based in Dundee in Scotland. Hannah leads Studio Plica, a studio that explores colour, materials and the politics of pattern. Hannah makes beautiful things, tender, intricate and precise, peppered with pattern and with a seductive tactility, from jewellery to furniture and soon to be large-scale enamel panels, all drawing from patterns and their rich and complex heritage. Hannah's currently part of the first cohort of 2020, an initiative by University of the Arts London to support the careers of a new generation of diverse artists. Hannah's exploring the archive at the Harris Museum in Preston and looking at decolonising and unpacking the pattern textiles in their collection. Hannah's chosen a stunning collection of patterns, some from her home and family and some from the collections she's been exploring. I'm really excited to unravel these threads with Hannah today. So welcome, Hannah, to Pattern Portraits. Hi, Lauren. It's really nice to be here and to talk to you about all these things pattern. Yeah, it's lovely to have you. Um, So I start by asking everybody, what does pattern mean to you? Yeah, so I find this quite a hard uh, question to answer. Um, But I think there's kind of almost two parts to it. So um, pattern for me exists on a kind of I almost have like a kind of very emotional reaction to it like a very kind of basic instinctive reaction it tends to be when I see pattern out and about and I just immediately love it and I get really excited um and it's often kind of um I don't know like tiling on walls or a floor or sometimes it can be things that people wear but often it's kind of um in spaces and and you know or more incidental patterns that are kind of not necessarily obvious that can be overlooked so that's one way I kind of respond and feel about pattern but the other way is that I kind of increasingly I feel like it's a key to a door that can unlock all this other understanding and knowledge and maybe maybe the two kind of combine because almost you have a very um emotional or you know 
gut reaction to a pattern that kind of can then can lead you in. So I feel like it can just be a really easy route into like other much more complicated ideas and thoughts and histories. Yeah, it's sort of a um it's a false friend in a way. It's sort of showing its its kind of friendly face and then there's so much to unpack. Yeah. Um it's really, really nice to think about about pattern as a key. And I think because of the patterns I'm looking at, but they're more part of the um, you know, the fabric of the materials. Um, but sometimes they're sitting on the surface. Mm. So it's like you think it's kind of decorative it's nonsense it doesn't really mean anything it's you know it's just pretty it's just aesthetic but actually there's a whole load of other stuff going on underneath Mm. I think it's often dismissed and overlooked um and maybe part of that is also being associated with the feminine also making and craft and these things of not being important in a hierarchy definitely yeah I think that's really interesting and something you said then about um the sort of surface there's this quote that I often come back to, um, which is from a book about the Memphis design group. And they talk about the way they treat colour is there's always a pigment and never a patina. And I think what I read from that is that conceptually they're talking about it being deeper than the surface. And I think that's kind of what you're touching on is this idea of the way it, it sort of gets woven into the fabric of the material um and the history of it yeah definitely and that you know you can on one level I mean maybe that's what's so great about pattern you can take it on a surface kind of oh I love that I'm immediately drawn to that but you can also really dig into like well how's it made who's made it you know what are the histories behind that making um so I Mm. I think I like that that it you know can work in those twofold ways but ultimately it can just be about excitement and joy and pure enjoyment as well I totally chime with what you're saying and I think it's something that runs runs deep in both of our practices um it would be really nice to hear about your first pattern I'm kind of jumping off from that so um this textile is from um a series of volumes by John Forbes Watson who created um the textile manufacturers of India these are um a set of volumes that are in the Harris collection so that's been my main focus um of looking at the 2020 residency uh, with the decolonizing institute at UAL so this fabric is woven um it's a mashru fabric um which um from the persian means permitted so it's silk on the surface and cotton underneath and um basically muslim men weren't allowed to wear pure silk so to get round this they create there was these fabrics created that were then um, permitted. Um, And in Sanskrit, it also relates to a Sanskrit word that means mixed. But there's also a lot more going on with it just being in this set of volumes. Um, So it's from Hyderabad, which is north of Chennai, which is where my dad is from, but it was actually bought in Madras, which is now known as Chennai. Okay. And these textiles were compiled by John Forbes Watson, and he wanted to create this mobile museum this kind of um, industrial uh, archive that could go around Britain. So there were 20 sets made in total, 13 that stayed in the UK, seven that went to India. And the idea was that um, they would go into town halls or places that, that basically the general population could access. And it was for designers and manufacturers to understand Indian textiles so that they could create British textiles that could then go into the Indian market. So they were trying to tap into the Indian market, basically. So I've been really interested in this idea of copying and ownership Mm. of pattern and appropriation of pattern. Um, And also, um, I've been thinking a lot about hybrid patterns. So where you kind of, I've seen like, um, you know, turkey reds, bandanas that have then been embroidered the embroidery looks Indian but the bandana was was probably British but often with textiles you don't have like a lot of information so Mm. the thing about these volumes is is that we have we have a huge amount of information but we never have the name of the maker but we do know where they were bought um how much they cost the length of the fabric the original piece of fabric because that's the other thing all these um fabrics were cut up 
So, and they were cut up and sometimes in the volumes they're cut up and then he folds um, the end, you know, the the kind of salvage up. So you can see the whole, you get a sense of the whole piece of fabric. And, And also they talk about the use of the fabric, you know, who wore it. So it'll say like shirting or trousers, you know, so you'll get a sense of Mm -hmm. kind of how it was used. And it's kind of part of a much bigger project of classifying textiles, but also kind of classifying people because you had alongside this um, around the same time, the Peoples of India, which is a photographic um, set volumes that kind of uh, puts people into different categories. Um, So it might be to do with, um, you know, tribes or it might be to do with um certain communities and the language used is really is often really racist and so right. it's kind of this imperial project of classifying things but you know in the case of the textile manufacturers of india it's for commercial gain okay so i just find it really fascinating mm. um, and most of the textiles they came from the india museum which then eventually became those stores were transferred to the VNA, you know, so they were kind of cut up from there and the information was taken from the original labels. Um, right, so, so, think, uh, so it sort of got scattered and kind of diluted. Yeah, yeah. yeah. so the, the Harris have got one set, the VNA have got another set, um, and then um, Huddersfield have another set. Then John Forbes Watson produced a second set later on that's slightly different. Okay. Um, and so various places have those sets. And then there are some also in India. I think the Royal Asiatic Society Mumbai have a set. Um, I think there's another set in Calcutta. Um, so, yeah, it's kind of, they've all been spread out. Mm, wow, this book holds so much weight. It sounds like maybe in the beginning there was an intention to keep as much information as possible but that sort of along the line didn't happen and that information was collected for dubious gain rather than for sort of um for the benefit of the people who made it in the first place I think it's really it's really complicated so Forbes Watson talks about his intentions he doesn't see it as a negative thing he thinks that people in India will be able to access cheaper fabrics and then have more you know, money at their disposal. And there's a fine line between the kind of admiring the fabrics and appropriating the fabrics. And I think the same thing is kind of going on with Thomas Wardle, who's connected to the arts and crafts movement. He really admires, um, you know, Indian block prints and Indian prints. Um, But then he takes some of those blocks and actually prints them himself. So Mm -hmm. there's kind of a lot of um, admiration and imitation going on yeah Um, and so it's really uh complicated and it's really hard to unpick the exact impact on the textile industry as a result of these volumes and that's kind of partly what I'm going to be carrying on looking at trying to unpick trying to understand this relationship between British textiles and Indian textiles and pattern making and copying and appropriation in this period so it's going to be kind of a part of a longer term project for me Okay, and how will that manifest physically? So um, I'm actually going to embark on a um, practice-based PhD at the School of Design at Leeds University. So I'm starting that this autumn, and that's going to be on British copies of Indian textiles. But I'm, you know, because it's practice-based, I really want to then have a response. It's not just about the research is really key and really important, but as a designer, I want to retain that kind of, that making you know, I really love mm. making. You can learn and understand things through making. So yeah, so there's always going to be a kind of um, physical outcome in terms of me creating patterns, me responding to these patterns. Um, and so for the Harris uh, residency, I'm actually making um, 14 um, panels. So they're vitreous enamel panels that I'm printing with um, the manufacturers AJ Wells uh, on the Isle of Wight and they're screen printed panels based on um, an Indian textile and a British textile. So the one that we've just been talking about, the mashru, is um, on the first set of panels combined with a British textile. And there's kind of like this kind of collage and disruption and kind of cut up. So the patterns are not, initially they look like they're just straight and they're just, you know, um, 
uninterrupted, but, but there's a kind of disconnect. So they're kind of distorted and slashed through and cut up. Then the British pattern kind of overlaid, collaged over the top of um, the Indian pattern. Okay, kind of obscuring some of it and kind of yeah. muscling in. Yeah, yeah, okay. yeah. Um, I'm interested in finding out if, if in some way working with pattern and kind of understanding the history and perhaps as you say like this is from the place where your dad was from kind of understanding your own history as well um if what that journey's like for you does it feel kind of empowering to be sort of informing yourself in this way or like what does it signify how does it feel to to do that yeah I think it's quite it's quite complicated because I think on the one hand it does feel really empowering and it's kind of part of a kind of um bigger thing for me of kind of connecting of you know like I'm learning Tamil I've been learning Tamil for two years now um so it's a kind of connecting to that heritage because I think there was a lot of assimilation and a lot of kind of not seeing value in that necessarily um and I remember when I was studying textiles I remember going to the V&A and there being conversations about the Muslim and, you know, how amazing Indian Muslim was and then talking about chintz and how chintz was banned. But there wasn't really any recognition of the influence of Indian textiles, the importance of Indian textiles, how Indian textiles then impacted British textiles. And so there was just kind of no real understanding of that. Um, because what you have is like the great exhibition where, um, you know, India is given real um, dominance in that exhibition and Indian textiles is given, you know, a kind of spotlight. And it was seen by a third of the population. So it was like hugely impactful. And I think at that point, Britain was, was you know, technologically was doing really well in terms of manufacturing and, in, you know, industrial innovation. But in terms of design, we weren't, you know, we were kind of inferior um, and right. we weren't cutting edge. And around this time, also you have a lot of art colleges and design, you know, institutions being formed in order to teach like designers and um, so to feed back into that system. So I think it, I, I'm, I find it really fascinating. I find it, and on one level, it's just, I'm really intrigued and kind of want to learn more. But on the other level, I've, it does make me feel sad, like all this kind of history, all this knowledge just kind of being suppressed and just not acknowledged mm. or not really given the, the prominence that it deserves. And I think we have quite a skewed sense of, of history and our design history. Maybe it's being taught differently now, but certainly when I was studying, I'd, it wasn't being taught, you know, highlighting these kind of these stories. Mm. Yeah, I think there's a lot of work undoing to be done. Um, and it seems like uh, you're a kind of key player in that, um, in in the potential restructuring of how we think about those things. Yeah, I think there's a kind of growing um, desire to to really, you know, for museums to look at their, you know, look at their panels explaining, you know, these objects and, and to kind of, because it's almost like you could flip those panels and there would be this whole other narrative that we just haven't talked about. Mm. And I think that is beginning to happen, which is really exciting and really encouraging. Maybe we could speak about the next fabric. So thinking about, you know, my relationship with pattern and kind of, um, yeah, my mum basically was always making stuff. So... Um, when I was younger, she was doing embroidery, she was doing jumpers, she was she was kind of always making. And then later on, when I left home, um, because basically she'd she'd had really ill health all her life. She had um a couple of kidney transplants, the first one didn't work, and the second one um was successful, but it meant that she she didn't ever return to work after having me and my brother. Um, and when I left home, I think she just found it really hard. And then she discovered quilting and she just okay. loved it and just went for it and just had this amazing time, like making quilts, buying quilts, mm. you know, hanging out with her quilting friends. Um, and she exhibited quilts and she won lots of kind of quilt prizes. Um, wow. And 
So when she died, we we inherited, you know, all of these quilts that she'd made and that she'd bought. Um, and um, she would make very, very bright quilts. <laughs> they were like very, yeah, rainbow colours. Um, and But this one is actually one that she bought. And I don't know a huge amount about it. I think it's 1930s. Mm. So on one side, it's a whole cloth. Um, and then on the other side, it's actually, you know, a patchwork. But I prefer the kind of whole cloth side. Um, okay. You know, after all my talk of kind of, you know, cutting up patterns and disrupting patterns, I don't know, sometimes patterns are just nice when they're just <laughs> alone as well. So, um, so yeah, and it, it currently lives on my youngest um, daughter's bed. And so it reminds oh, me of her. Oh, that's nice. It's crossing generations. It's um, yeah. It's got a really nice kind of bubbly, I would say it sort of looks almost bubbly the pattern um it's kind of blue blue slightly geometric background of sort of l shapes that interlock and then there's kind of on the top surface there's sort of blue and creamy white bubbles um or circles um but it's got a nice um I suppose it could be read as floral from far away, maybe. Yeah. Um, but yeah. up close, it's actually quite graphic. It's quite simple on one level in terms of it's only a, it's a two-colour print, you know, but um, I don't know. I, there's just that, a thing that's when I talked about kind of that emotional reaction, immediately loving a pattern, I just mm. saw it and I really, you know, I think maybe I saw the, the the patchwork side first, which I didn't like as much, and then I turned the back over and I was like, oh, I love this side. So I only ever keep it on that, on that um, pattern, uh-huh. you know, the whole side but yeah I mean I think it also kind of speaks to me about um you know my mum and that relationship with textiles and pattern and my mum and you know she always encouraged me to kind of be making stuff I used to like I remember being like I think eight and making like a turquoise and magenta uh, mohair jumper oh cool what like knitted Knitting, knitting it, yeah. <laughs> Amazing. But so you grew up in Birmingham, is that right? Yeah. yeah, so I grew up in Birmingham. And was there kind of particular patterns that were around beyond sort of what your mum was doing or what you were kind of interested in? Yeah, so I remember my bedroom, um, my first wallpaper was um, like little pink roses and green leaves on a kind of cream background. And I remember lying in bed and kind of looking at the pattern and making faces out of the pattern and things Mm. and then later on I remember um going to fads (laughs) I don't know do you know fads no it's like this straight I don't know if it still exists it's like 80s kind of 80s wallpaper it's where you went to get your wallpaper and curtains and things and Mm. so um we went, I remember going to fads and I was getting to choose what my wallpaper and my curtains were going to be and they were matching. Um, and so it was kind of like this kind of pastel rainbow, almost like stripes, but in kind of quite a granular pattern. Um, and I've still got a little bit of the fabric okay. actually um, from the curtains. I've still got that. Um, and so I remember that. Yeah. And then I was thinking about, oh yeah, I really like the fact that the curtains and the wallpaper were matching. Like that's something that I'm really uh-huh. interested kind of exploring that kind of patterns across different surfaces across different materials Mm, I I can imagine if they're stripes as well your eye would sort of attempt to line them up yeah they were kind of like textured disjointed they weren't completely you know it wasn't like a pinstripe or something it was more kind of Mm -hmm. disruptive that so yeah and then and then we we had wild carpets like 70s carpets which some of which are still in my dad's house Um, oh wow one of them's kind of turquoise and gold and kind of black and yeah cool you get lost in your mohair jumper and the turquoise carpet (laughs) (laughs) um I'm interested in this idea of like patterns across different surface materials and um did you you studied printed textiles is it I studied um printed textiles at um, Chelsea College of Art and then uh-huh. um I worked for an inspirational textile studio um for a few years I was their main print designer and I also project managed the inspirational textile um part of the studio and we mainly what's had inspirational of- textile so we had I worked really um, closely with a colorist so we would basically look at trends 
and we would um, decide on a kind of upcoming trend and that might be to do with a film that was you know coming out or an exhibition that was on and we was kind of work out you know what we thought the next trends were going to be and then we'd create a story around that and then I was creating prints to fit into that story and the colorist was creating these kind of range of shades so that when we went to our clients um, which were mainly in New York we would have um, say six boxes with different stories and within that and we would also collect like um, vintage textiles that we thought fit into that stories and then the uh, company would choose you know um, a color swatch that then they could use to be lab dyed they would also buy the prints and then they would own the um you know the intellectual property to those prints okay yeah so I did that quite a few years and I really enjoyed it but what I found was doing the digital print um I just missed materials I missed like you know actually physically working with materials and kind of having that interaction so after that I decided um to go and do my MA at the Royal College also in printed textiles and that was when I kind of pivoted from working more on textiles to working on hard surfaces and um you know, working with lots of different materials. Yeah, because you made these amazing um, uh, sort of stools, kind of modular furniture items yeah. that could be twisted, kind of turned around and they had lots of different patterns on each yeah. surface. Yeah, so they're kind of like sculptural furniture pieces. And um, so I used like a range of different techniques, so screen printing, etching and lacquering and yeah, lots of different kind of material explorations that then became, you know, one facet of these French pieces that then can be configured in lots of different ways. So again, it's kind of coming back to this collage of pattern. I'm really interested in when patterns can kind of have a conversation with each other or, you know, an interaction with each other and what kind of happens then, which I think speaks back to, you know, what I'm doing with the panels and that kind of like yeah. interaction between a British textile and Indian textile and where they kind of, you know, rub up against each other and something different happens. Absolutely. Um, and thinking about the uh, other surfaces that you've done, recently you've been making enamel jewellery as well. Um, yeah. Sort of much, it sort of feels like the furniture, but kind of shrunk down <laughs> to kind of yeah. ear size or necklace yeah. size. Are they kind of hand enameled? How are you making the kind of yeah, so patterns that you do? They are um, chemically etched brass, and then um, I solder them, and then the pattern surface is with cold enamel. So okay. uh, almost like miniature painting, like I'm working with a pin and I'm moving the pigment around to kind oh, of really? these patterns and these shapes. It's all about kind of learning, you know, what the material does and the timing of it, because sometimes if you move it too early or introduce the second color too early, it all disperses and does a different thing. And so it's lots of okay. kind of material testing and tweaking and um, and a lot of those patterns were kind of inspired by M papers. So, um, you know, when you look in books and you've got the kind of marbled, the mm. inside hardcover of a book. And actually, really interestingly, going to all these archives and seeing all these fabrics, so many of them have these amazing um, M papers, you know, marbled M papers. I'm always like taking photos of the M papers and then taking photos of the. Right. So I really like end papers. Yeah, well, maybe that brings us nicely on to one of the patterns you've chosen, which is it Mark Porson end papers? Yeah. yeah, so I found this when I was studying in London and um, immediately, like I saw it and I just loved it. It's that, you know, what I've been talking about earlier, that just kind of immediate reaction to a pattern. Magnetism. Um, yeah, and I just really love these kind of patterns I don't know I've just been drawn to them for a really long time and actually when I was thinking about this I remember being little and getting um kitchen roll sheets of kitchen roll and putting watercolor on in like a palette <laughs> obviously had a bit of a sense of a palette at that age and kind of imagining that I was going to produce these like in my kind of fictional childish kind of uh role-playing was going to sell these in a kind of market store <laughs> I must have made like mm. I don't know Maybe about 20 of them sitting in my room kind of painting. And I don't know, there's something about that kind of incidental pattern. I don't know, like some of the patterns in in the Mark Paulson book are kind of smudgy or as ones where like it, there's a drip 
kind of down one page um and so you've got you know the beautiful uh, marble patterns and very deliberate patterns and then you've got this you know the back of it which is just a kind of drip but it's just there's lo- lots of space and it's really lovely as well I'm really drawn to textures and, and patterns that aren't necessarily quite so deliberate or that mimic things in nature so my furniture pieces are all about mimicking natural patterns and um, so marbling and things like that mm. there's something about end papers that have I suppose they feel like a kind of treat or a nice surprise because they're sort of the overlooked bit they're not really the yeah. feature of the book I mean it sounds like is this am I right in understanding this book is of end papers it's a sort of yeah, whole book so, of end papers so basically there was a, a like ledger maker in, in Brixton you know some uh, a company that made like old kind of notebooks and ledgers and things and they were shutting down and there were all these end papers and so I think he bought a selection of these end papers and then he basically turned them into these you know the series of artist books um and so that's you know that's where they came from but so they're just purely a pattern page after page a pattern um, mm. there's something interesting about um the selection of patterns that you've chosen a lot of them do this thing that you're talking about of bringing many patterns together in one place they're an archive or a volume or a quilt where it's a sort of um it's that conversation is happening amongst the pages or from kind of piece to piece on the quilt um, or from the front to the back or within the volume there's this sort of gathering of a kind of grouping of characters or or elements together um, so that that conversation it's really nice to think actually there is an arc through the things you've chosen that it all has that conversation yeah yeah definitely and I think yeah, it's about that that kind of these things rubbing up against each other and what they then reveal or what you can then learn from from juxtaposing mm. those two things next to each other. Hiring for your small business? If you're not looking for professionals on LinkedIn, you're looking in the wrong place. That's like looking for your car keys in a fish tank. LinkedIn helps you hire professionals you can't find anywhere else. Even those who aren't actively searching for a new job, but might be open to the perfect role. In a given month, over 70% of LinkedIn users don't even visit other leading job sites. So start looking in the right place. With LinkedIn, you can hire professionals like a professional. Post your free job on linkedin.com slash achieve today. Hey, it's Ryan Reynolds, and I'm here with Keith, co-star of my upcoming film, If, only in theaters May 17th. Do you want to tell people the big news? All right, I'll do. It. Sign up now and you'll get unlimited for $15 a month in six months of Paramount Plus Essential Plan on us. Mintmobile.com slash switch. Upfront payment of $45 equivalent to $15 per month. Unlimited over 40 gigabytes per month. Face lower speeds. Videos at 480p. Active Mint customers by 531.24 get six months of Paramount Plus Essential Plan. Auto renews after six months. Offer ends May 31st, 2024. Separate Paramount Plus registration required. Terms and conditions apply if rated PG. Another of your patterns of your grandmother's sari um if you could tell me about that yeah so my grandmother lived with us from when I was born until I was 13 and she only ever wore saris uh she never wore anything else so they would be sometimes like nylon saris with more kind of prints and things on but um, whenever there was a special occasion, like going out for dinner or anything, she would always wear these very beautiful silk saris. Um, so when she died, you know, I inherited silk saris. I made a selection from them. So my grandma was very tall um, for a South Indian. Um, so she kind of cut an imposing figure. <laughs> and then mm. obviously we lived in the suburb of Birmingham. So, you know, she was kind of quite a striking figure in her saris. The saris are just my kind of relationship to that history. And also she would regularly go to India and always come back. There would always be textiles that she would bring back and different things, boutiques and, yeah, new saris. And I think she spent quite a lot of money on saris. So, uh-huh. yeah. Mm, so would this have been quite an expensive one, you think? Yeah, yeah. I mean, it's kind of like, a you know, for a special occasion, it's not it's not necessarily your yeah. everyday one. Yeah. It's got very lush colours. It's sort of a, well, it's kind of many different shades of magenta and purple and pink in there. Uh, And then a kind of gold 
band almost yeah. uh, with this rich sort of um how would we describe that blue it's like a peacock blue it's kind of a it's brighter um, than an indigo yeah but it's not quite it's not really an electric blue it's kind of you know the blue is quite a sophisticated color you know they tend to be in quite jewel like shades the ones that um were for special occasions and things so and she never wore particularly muted colors but but there was a kind of softer palette for like every, more everyday wear and this um color linked in the same way as i know that in kind of renaissance painting getting a kind of particular shade of blue or white or a certain color is actually was really expensive and difficult to come by is that similar in the kind of textile industry throughout history which kind of a sapphire blue, for example, sort of imply a certain wealth. Yeah, so so definitely, like color is kind of, um, you know, has its kind of own uh, material history and complexities within that. So, um, one of the things that I've been looking at with my kind of archive research has been um, looking about color and considering color, and basically, Indian textiles were kind of prized for their kind of color range and the brightness of color and also that they were color fast and European textiles. Mm. So you're talking kind of late 1700s around that time, European textiles couldn't um, compete in terms of color. They just couldn't get the kind of um, vibrance of color, the range of colors. And so Mm. part of the reason why Indian textiles, South Asian textiles were so um, dominant was because of of their kind of craftsmanship to do with colour. And then that, and then in that period that I've been looking at, so the volumes are, um, you know, published in 1866 and the Great Exhibition is 1851. So around that kind of period is when you get chemical dyes and you get um, Perkins, um, you know, inventing, I think it's called Movine. And so you get this kind of explosion of different colours. Then it kind of all shifts and changes what is kind of being worn and the colours um, that people can access is changes. And so I'm really interested in that, that kind of relationship between colour and, and then how that then expands out into the world of fashion and, and textile history. Mm, sort of becoming technicolour all of a sudden. Yeah, yeah. And, that, and, then, and also, like, obviously the way it's manufactured is completely different. So, you know, in um, South Asia, it's all working with um, natural dyes and... Um, you know, mm. from plants, and it's kind of more to do with craft. And in Britain, it's more to do with manufacturing technology and science, really. So there's a there's a kind of you know difference in um, in the way that that they're kind of manifesting these colours, mm. and a very different interaction with the material and impact on the world and environment. Yeah. I guess. Um, do you ever wear? these sari fabric um so I've only worn them a couple of times in my life I think again it's to do with I don't know that kind of assimilation and not I don't know just it not being um I've worn them for weddings but I've not really worn Mm. them on other occasions but that's something definitely that as part of understanding all of this and this kind of um you know my textile heritage is something that I want to kind of embrace and explore yeah and as a child, would they, would would you be dressed up in them on occasion, or was uh, or was that assimilation something that happened kind of early I on, mean, and you were sort of? Yeah, so I think I remember going into school once because there was like I don't know, so, so something to do with celebrating different cultures, and then I wore it. But then it kind of again, it's almost like a costume that you kind mm. of. Um, put on or think it kind of felt a bit strange and I remember being in a school play when I was like five and being dressed up in like a a, I think a Japanese kind of kimono and again so I think there was kind of like these undercurrents of like a being other and not necessarily and it almost being like a costume that you put on or like oh, well, you're mixed race, so you can represent the, you know, the Japanese um, child in wow, this. Yeah. I don't know. It's just like, and although, like, later on, so my, my primary schools were predominantly white, but my secondary school was much more mixed. Um, and so I think there's kind of, I don't know, a kind of disconnect or a confusion, like, it's not a kind of clear-cut 
thing that I can answer does that make sense in terms of it's mm, quite of course more complicated and loaded like I think um I would have loved to have worn them more but it wasn't necessarily a part of my upbringing I think increasingly like a lot of these things um I'm learning that I've got to kind of discover it and feel my way through it for myself like it's with mm. with learning Tamil my grandma and dad spoke Tamil in the home but we never learned it and so mm. it's almost like these things are there but they're not they're slightly away from the center or something yeah and this may be kind of too heavy a question in a way but do you think that um that from your dad's point of view presumably he was the one driving I'm I'm imagining he was the one driving the kind of assimilation do you think that uh you empathize with his maybe at the particular time at which that was happening he felt that was what was needed in order to kind of move forward in, yeah, in the environment think, that you were living in well I think it's about survival I think to to a large degree it would have been about survival also, we were not having the conversations that we're all having now. I think probably, yeah, he was just trying to find kind of perhaps the smoothest route through. Um, and I think, you know, my family history is complicated because so my um, my family are all Indian Christians and um, um, my dad's grandfather, he went to missionary school for secondary school because there wasn't... Um, another school he could go to and then he converted and his family were told um by the kind of community that either you have to um leave with him or you have to disown him so they disowned him and they had nothing more to do with him and um so there was kind of often conversion through education but it was also seen as kind of um opportunity so um, being able to access certain jobs or certain, you know, or education that that kind of would give you opportunity. Um, so my dad um, actually was sent to an English medium school, and so didn't um, he can speak Tamil, but he can't read and write it. So I think this kind of process of assimilation wasn't was already kind of happening it was a generation like, before. Yeah. In. So it's kind of it's it's quite complex. Um, and I think it's easy to kind of maybe look on it and kind of um, maybe think, oh, you're denying your culture. But then I think it's I think it's much more complicated than that. It's much more messy than that. Mm. And I think it kind of means that, you know, for me, I kind of there's this hybridity going on, which is also then relates back to kind of everything I'm looking at in terms of the textiles and kind of thinking about like hybrid objects and where two things meet. And, and maybe part of it is just accepting that of not, you know, I don't know, accepting it in its complexity and its messiness and that sometimes it's upsetting and that it's, you know, not straightforward. Um, so I don't know that he was, he wasn't consciously like the driving force behind that kind of assimilation. I think it was just the kind of environment that you're put in and, you know you've got a lot of different pressures on you and you're just trying to kind of um find the easiest smoothest route through of course yeah yeah I mean nobody really sets out in parenting with a plan or maybe some people do but (laughs) (laughs) it doesn't go to plan so (laughs) yeah you know like food like we ate Indian food all the time at home like you know we Mm. there was lots of aspects that were very much were very much not assimilated assimilated and Mm. you know my steadfastly wearing saris and wearing nothing else you know there were lots of aspects that kind of that Mm. that were not subsumed and that so it was it was you know my overall feeling is that it was kind of a mixture of all these different things yeah um I'm interested in another pattern that your grandmother plays a part in which is these is it columns so columns so they are um patterns that you draw on your threshold to your home Um, So you do them in either um, like white chalk powder or rice flour. Um, And um, so they're basically like a continuous geometric pattern. You're not meant to break the line. And it's meant to be to kind of, um, you're meant to make them at the start of the day. So like before dawn. And then the idea is that, you know, as the day goes on, they kind of get displaced and kind of swept away as people come into your house and you leave your house. They're also 
uh, meant to, if you do it in rice flour, it's meant to be for like ants and birds and different, you know, like mice and things to be able to come and get a meal. So it's like you're welcoming um, mm. into your home. Oh, that's nice. Yeah. So I remember my grandma doing them generally around Christmas. Um, she would do them in the porch. and But I mean, I don't know how she did that. I don't know how she did that. Is it because they're like a Yeah. Is it sort of cord in a continuous line? I mean, I can't even really draw them particularly well. <laughs> so, you know, and you're meant to not lift, you know, if you're drawing them, you're not meant to lift the pen off the paper, but, you know, when you're pouring mm. them, you're meant to do it in one action. Um, and it was often women that did it. Um, so you're meant to kind of crouch down and do it in one action. Um, so, yeah, I just remember them being, like we're talking about assimilation, I remember that always being a part of, you know, my childhood that my grandma would make these columns. Mm. And she was actually a maths teacher and um, there's something very mm. mathematical about them, you know. Um, yeah. They kind of follow a, a different kind of mathematical um, patterns. So, yeah, I, I did buy rice flour and I keep on intending to give them a go. I think my efforts will be really quite poor <laughs> because <laughs> they are complicated. And um, and so actually my, when my brother got married, um he wanted that as his wedding invitation. So I got my grandma to draw out all the colons that she knew, could think of. And it's often passed down, um, you know, from mother to, to daughter. So, um, so yeah, she drew in biro in an old exercise book, all the different colons. So that's how I've still got them. Nice. So that's the, the kind of legacy that you have, these biro drawings. Yeah, these biro drawings, yeah. <laughs> There's something so beautiful about the ephemerality of them and the fact that they would... I love thinking about how it would sort of be a trace of the many people that had crossed your threshold during that time, presumably at Christmas when there's quite a lot of people that come in and yeah. out of the house. And it's sort of a mark of... Oh, I'm reading into it that it would be a kind of mark of sociability or sort of the fact that your column is messed up actually is shows that you've had lots of visitors yeah yeah I don't really remember them being messed up I just remember her like um doing them so but they but they must have been we must have all you know kind of walked through them and yeah maybe people leapt over them maybe you felt yeah I want to ask you about kind of your own home and surrounding yourself with pattern um, in the way that you dress and in the things that you choose to surround yourself with Um, and I know that one of the patterns you've chosen is a Japanese lacquerware tray is it something that you use no it isn't so um so basically um my partner um was in a, a antique shop in Edinburgh and it, my birthday was like coming up and he saw the tray and he was like oh Hannah would love that because to me it just speaks of all the end paper patterns this the kind of um, mm. patterns kind of um you know all of that so um he went up to them and and he said because you know, there was no price on it and he was like how much is it and they were like um looking at it and they were like oh that's really weird and they they were like, are you sure, like, where did you find it? They were just didn't, they didn't recognize it as an object they were selling. And um, he was like, oh, I found it propped up against the stairs. And they were like, oh, that's our tea tray. <laughs> so they were using it as their tea, it was their tea tray. And they must have yeah. obviously the tea down and then props it against the stairs and Sean had come along and gone, oh, that's really nice. <laughs> and um, Hannah would love that. <laughs> He was like, well, will you sell it to me? And they were like, yeah, we'll sell it to you. So they kind of named a price. And yeah, I would love to know how it's made. I would love to know the process of it. And that is propped up in my bedroom. So I kind of look onto that. And then um, we have a fireplace that's basically made in by Granby Workshop, who are, I think, based in Liverpool. Yeah, and they, we collected um, lots of stones um, from the beach outside our house and also from Okmithi Beach, which is near our growth. And they made um, like cast, a cast fireplace for us. So that's kind of got a terrazzo kind of feel, but with, you know, our local uh, kind of uh, porphyry stones and that and similar kind of feel of patterns of kind of, you know, splodges and things. 
And so the tray and that are kind of, you know, in close proximity. And then my furniture pieces are also in that room. So I kind of feel like all these kind of objects are kind of speaking to each other across my bedroom. (laughs) So, um, yeah. yeah. Um, So I think I am more interested in pattern and interiors. I used to wear pattern a lot, but I think as I've, you know, more immersed in pattern and working with it every day, I kind of find that I just wear block colours. So, um, mm. yeah, so I've actually put on something pattern today <laughs> to chat to you because I do yeah. have some pattern. <laughs> yeah. Maybe that's to do with um, having cho- having three children and not necessarily having the time to kind of really think about what my clothing identity is anymore. I I think you know between mm. kind of dealing with all their needs and dealing with work, that's one aspect of you know of who I am that's maybe not been given as much. Um, time and energy and thought um and I would like to but it's just yeah juggling everything but I think um yeah my youngest has um uh an ability to put together some really interesting outfits which I really love like she'll pull her socks right up so they're often like really bright sometimes neon socks and then she'll pair it with like you know, she'll often wear like multiple patterns in one go or go for like wearing all one colour. Um, we've got one more pattern, I think, to talk about, um, which is the fan. So the fan um, is from the Harris collection and it is um, possibly French in origin, um, mid 19th century. Um, we don't know a huge amount of details about it, but but basically it you know, you can see from the kind of pattern on the fan that is referencing chintz, it's referencing um, Indian, mm-hmm. South Asian patterns. Um, and yet the um, sticks are kind of um, like they're ebonized wood, so they're not real ebony, it's kind of imitation ebony. And um, they're, they've kind of got a, almost like a Japanese pattern, like, um, you know, referencing... Um, Japanism so I don't know it's this kind of hybrid slightly odd object um coming from all these different places and kind of um and yeah I guess it's kind of you know speaking back about kind of appropriating design and kind of taking designs from other cultures but kind of mixing them all up and so they kind of become these strange object yeah yeah and even the fact it's ebonized wood and not actual ebony it's it's that imitation that kind of like mimicking but it's got a kind of like embroidered kind of gold chain stitch over it um there's something I just really like about it and it's going to be on the second set of panels so I'm using that pattern on the second set of panels so I feel like this in the mastery I've spent a lot of time kind of with these patterns drawing them and thinking about them um so yeah but I just I like it. I like the color combination. I can't, it's quite a busy pattern. It's there's quite a lot going on in it. Yeah. Um, but I kind of like the intricacy of it. You know, I don't know the pleating, the fact that it's a fan. There's something um, really lovely about it as well, and kind of not at the same time because it's this kind of hodgepodge, kind of borrowed from different cultures and different references. So yeah. Mm, yeah, it's sort of a pull and push. Yeah, um, the kind yeah. of attraction and rep- repel yeah, um, yeah. sort of feeling towards it. Yeah, I can understand that. It's sort of it carries traces of recognizable things and then skews them. Uh, yeah, and sort of it's a bit of a mashup. Um, yeah, which yeah. is kind of something quite amazing and interesting about that. A sort of a, an object that belongs nowhere in particular yeah. um but then the kind of politics of that the misappropriation and the kind of journey that those those things have been on and and who's who's quoting it I guess is where it comes back to and then and also like um it wasn't just British designers imitating South Asian patterns they were also copying each other so everyone was copying everybody right. else it's kind of mm. and you have the copyright laws um coming in in 1839 um which are kind of trying to strengthen that um you know and stop people from copying each other so textiles will get a protection for a certain period of time and so in the national archives in london we have volumes and volumes of um registered designs 
and then you get a sense of kind of the breadth of what was going on in this period and Mm. yeah and that kind of copying um certainly what was evident to me was kind of copying South Asian textiles there's such a complicated web of sort of thieving and appropriating and uh sort of the the conversation back and forth and it's something that I think um we're sort of talking about to some extent in past tense but I think it still happens now yeah yeah still I don't know if um you know much about it the kind of hist the complex history of tartan for example and I know that sort of more obviously something like paisley is clearly appropriated from um from elsewhere is tartan related to an indian textile what's so it's madras check right um, which there's a relationship between there and and the current exhibition the tartan exhibition at vna is is really great and covers a lot of those kind of complexities to do with um you know slavery and um and also to do with, they actually have the John Forbes Watson volumes, um, a couple of them, I think, on display um, as part of the exhibition. So it does talk about these other narratives and how Tartan is enmeshed in lots of different things culturally. Um, so, yeah, no, but I think I think you're right in saying that it doesn't, it's not that the copying has has stopped you know, with trends and things. We would kind of, when we were doing trends, sometimes we would do something that was like tribal you know it would just be called tribal Mm. called um ethnic I mean they're just such awful and inappropriate labels to be putting on a kind of narrative on a story and no sense of kind of a deep understanding of what these patterns are where they've come from who's created them it's almost like very much like surface kind of yeah tapping into that because it's I don't know you feel like it's a current trend I mean what does that even Mm. mean for these things to be a trend it's just I don't know it's all it's all very I suppose yeah we need to kind of start thinking about how we talk about these things and the histories of them and but I don't know that it's necessarily stopped and that kind of borrowing from other Mm. cultures really necessarily um delving into what you're borrowing because it's all pattern and it's all surface and it doesn't really mean anything right so it's kind of Mm. you know it can seem quite flippant which is kind of where we started the conversation about things being can seem quite on the surface but actually there's a whole load of other stuff going on underneath there's a couple of questions that I ask everybody at the end um is there a pattern that got away so I think the pattern that has got away is I want to really look into this relationship between British textiles and Indian textiles and figure out um find patterns that are kind of identifiable copies from the Forbes Watson volumes. So Sonia Ashmore, mm. who's a um textile, who's a design historian, she has found in the National Archives in London has found some pretty, you know, identical near identical copies. Um so I want to find that that elusive pattern, but it's a bit like hunting for a needle in a haystack because they're yeah so many of them and they're so vast and it'd be nice to find one it's almost like a memory game yeah 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 you're sort of trying to match match them up and but you have to hold all the information in your own brain about what you've seen before so that you can kind of pair it but fascinating as well to kind of you know go through them and see see all this kind of wealth of collage patterns and which pattern would you save from a house fire I think I would have to save the colum because because of that kind of sentimental relationship to my grandma and it's something that can't because in saving the colum I would save the whole book (laughs) so um, yeah and there's something I like about it just in terms of it being you know blue biro in a kind of old school notebook there's something about that I quite Mm. like Nice. Well, thank you so much, Hannah. It's been great. Really enjoyed hearing about your patterns. Yeah, it's been really interesting. It's kind of, yeah, it's interesting to kind of think about, yeah, family and kind of histories and all of that. Mm. Really enjoyed it. Yeah, it's also interwoven. Thank you so much. Okay, thank you.
You've been listening to Pattern Portraits with me, Lauren Godfrey. Follow us on Instagram at Pattern Portraits Podcast. The limited edition print accompanying this episode is available to buy now on laurengodfrey.co.uk. Join us next week for another chat about pattern. If you're looking for plump lips that last, you need to know about Juvederm Lip Fillers. With Juvederm Volbella XC and Juvederm Ultra XC, your lip look, whether it's subtle or bold, can last up to one full year with optimal treatment and no additional maintenance. Find a licensed specialist and see if it's right for you at Juvederm.com today. That's J-U-V-E-D-E-R-M.com. Add fullness to lips in adults over 21 with Juvederm Volbella XC or Juvederm Ultra XC. Do not use if you have severe allergies or a history of severe allergic reactions, or if you're allergic to lidocaine or the proteins used in Juvederm. Tell your doctor if you have a history of scarring or taking medicines that decrease the body's immune response or that can prolong bleeding. Common side effects include injection site redness, swelling, pain, tenderness, firmness, lumps, bumps, bruising, discoloration, or itching. As with all fillers, there's a rare risk of unintentional injection into a blood vessel, which can cause vision abnormalities, blindness, stroke, temporary scabs, or scarring. For full, important safety information, visit Juvederm.com. Imagine the softest sheets you've ever felt. Now imagine them getting even softer over time. That's what you'll feel with Bowling Branch's organic cotton sheets. In a recent customer survey, 96% replied that Bowling Branch sheets get softer with every wash. Start getting your best night's sleep in these sheets that get softer and softer for years to come. Try their sheets with a 30-night guarantee. Plus, get 15% off your first order at BowlingBranch.com. Code BUTTERY. Exclusions apply. See site for details.